Don't be wasting any time. I got somewhere to be. Always on the grind. Yeah, you know me. Hold the crown. Payback Time is a podcast that dives into the real story behind the person. How did they build their business? What challenges did they overcome? What mistakes did they make? And how did they achieve their goals? The overall objective is to provide you with a roadmap that leads to success. Sean Tepper is your host. Are you ready? It's payback time. Are you at risk of becoming an obsolete executive? Don't let your dream job leave you behind. My next guest is a board-certified coach for executives and entrepreneurs. Do you need help rebalancing your work and life? Do you need to increase your output without expending more hours? Do your employees see you more of a manager, not a leader? This guy can help. Please welcome Andy Dix. Andy, welcome to the show. Sean, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me today. Absolutely. Thanks for joining me. So if you would kick us off, why don't you tell us your career backstory? Well, the story is when I was about nine years old, my parents had a tea strainer and uh, an old set of army surplus headphones, and they gave it to me to play with. And literally I was talking into the tea strainer, pretending it was a microphone, wearing the headphones and pretending that I was a disc jockey. And I thought, wow, that's the life for me. And I grew up on the South shore of Lake Michigan in Valparaiso, Indiana, listening to the enormous AM 89 WLS, Mm -hmm. which was a top 40 radio station back in the day and had huge on your personalities. And I thought, wow, that's what I really wanted to be. And then uh, WKRP in Cincinnati came on television. And I thought, wow, that's that's great. That's it. And so I actually pursued that dream. And I, as a sophomore in high school, I went for a career day at my little local radio station, WAKE AM in Valparaiso. And they didn't know what to do with me. So they asked me to write a commercial just for something to do to get out of the hair of everybody else as a sophomore in high school. And I wrote a commercial. I actually liked it. And they said, you can come back and do this some more. And so I started working part-time and stayed in radio all through college, um, thinking that was it. But of course, the world was changing. And so I ended up being uh, on air and then operations managers of a couple of radio stations and realized that the world was absolutely going, uh, at that time, satellite, and then would soon go digital. And wow, my world's changing. So I went back to grad school got into television thinking well, I, could, I could make my career there and was at the beginning of this new thing called Fox Television, where we had two nights of Network Prime and mm-hmm. they came out with this thing called The Simpsons, which I thought, man, a cartoon for adults, that'll never catch on. Um, yeah, I didn't really know much How about many years television, later, right? obviously, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I would have not wanted to uh, take my advice on that and bet against me instead. Um, but then I ended up coming um, full circle out of grad school and got into television and was really thinking this is great and got into this thing called cable television, which was a new thing at the time. And all of that is sort of this uh, bobsled of career that I was trying to stay ahead of this avalanche of technology that every time I was making these career moves, the technology was changing and the audience was changing. And who knew that one day uh, I would be able to create in my laptop and basement uh, a podcast of my own that rivals anything I could have done with hundreds of thousands of dollars of professional equipment years ago. You just wouldn't, in my lifetime, you wouldn't expect that. 
And so I was ended up uh, getting into uh, advertising sales and coaching for a major Fortune 500 company. Was there 17 years and had learned just enormous amount about leadership and professional development and coaching. And I was up for promotion and to a nationwide role, walked into HR thinking this was finally it. And boy, was it. It was finally it. Uh, about a nine-minute conversation later, I had a severance package in my hand, and I was out the door thanks to a corporate restructuring that I didn't know was coming. Mm. And so at 53 years old, I had to once again reinvent myself. What was I going to do for the rest of my life? Sure. And that's that's a tough place to be. Now, fortunately, I had a very generous severance package, but I had to decide what was I going to invest in. Was I going to invest in a franchise, or was I going to invest mm-hmm. in another W-2 type job, which right now, you know, in in your 50s, you typically have about a 24-month longevity in any role. And so I would be doing it a couple of more times if I were going to uh, stay a W-2 employee. I thought that was really risky. And being blindsided was really uncomfortable and and devastating for me after 17 years with the same organization. So I said, well, I guess I'm going to invest in myself. And so I did. I completed uh, an online virtual executive coaching certification program. And it took about a year to do. And I began my own executive coaching company. And it's called AD Growth Advisors. And we'll celebrate five years, uh, April 16. And it's been an amazing journey ever since, helping mainly um, individuals that are, I consider, idealistic entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs, a lot of B Corps, benefit corps, those kinds of people and nonprofits, people who want to merge profit and purpose or maybe Mm -hmm. sometimes that's called conscious capitalism. And these folks have a a triple bottom line that they're trying to achieve, which is just fascinating to me. And if you've got to help somebody win, why not help the good guys? You know, and and that's kind of where I've been. That's awesome. Quite a journey. Yeah. And it's not over yet, you know? (laughs) No, no, we're we're still on on that journey for sure. What were you doing at the ad agency when you were there? What was your role? I was working in advertising sales uh, for Uh, this large telecommunications cable company. And so we would actually sell local, regional, and national advertising on 45 different cable networks, ESPN, CNN, Fox News, that kind of thing. And so, yeah, I was doing that. And then I got out of management into what we call human performance improvement, which is sort of a combination of training and also a consulting. So finding out what are the root causes that are keeping people from performing the way we would hope them to be. A lot of times training isn't the right answer. You know, there's mm-hmm. bad systems or conflicting um, conflicting sort of uh, rules or whatever that they keep good people from being able to do good things. Gotcha. Okay. Because that's really, I look at that position as internal training to kind of get you warmed up for what you're doing today. Exactly. Right? Yeah. It was, it was a fabulous training ground. I got to do projects that most people would never, ever get to do in a large company like that. And, and it was terrific. You know, I always tell people I had my dream job because I got to create it literally. But when you're one of a kind in an organization that large, you're also opting to be in a risky position when restructuring comes because you don't fit in any box. Yeah. And so that's, that's where I was. Yeah. That's what happened. Gotcha. So can you give us a little more detail around the specific service you provide as a coach? Yeah, absolutely. So when you work with individuals like I do, executives, uh, C-level people, founders, uh, that kind of thing, number one, they are 
very driven, typically. They are very different from the vast majority of other people, and they all think they're normal. And helping them get perspective of where they fit in in comparison to other people based on their value systems and other things is really critical for them to understand how to plug in to those other people that they're going to be interacting with. You know, most people can do the technical tasks of doing a job, but as an organization grows, then it really becomes more about the relationships and the human dynamics than it does the actual business processes. And it's much easier to change a software package out than it is to upgrade the uh, brain power or the relationships of your organization. And so that's a lot of the work that I do. Uh, A lot of inclusive collaboration, a lot of um, executive development, leadership development, helping leaders understand that, you know, you really have only three things, your ABCs, your attitudes, which include your mindset and your, your value system, your behaviors, which is what you're actually doing, some of which you may not be totally conscious about what you're doing and you're driving your coworkers crazy, and lastly, your competencies. So that's the combination of the knowledge and the skills and the proficiencies that you have and developed and what you bring to the actual work environment and what you can do, what you know, what you can do, and then what your mindset and what you're thinking about. All of those things combine, and a lot of times we have blind spots that keep us from really being able to reach our full potential or contributing in a way that's that's truly helpful and being the executive that that organization needs at that moment. And sometimes you need that eyes outside of the forest to help you see what other people are seeing and then help make the necessary changes in order to increase your effectiveness and increase your capacity to grow into that next role that the organization is really seeking. Sure. Do you primarily work with executives at like mid to larger size entities, or do you work with like small business owners that maybe lead like 20 people or less? Yeah, I like to have, I kind of have a sweet spot of anywhere from about 10 employees to about 200. Got it. And and that that's where you really start to feel the strain of layers of organizations. You know, Mm -hmm. when you have more than just the executive team that can all get together around a pizza and make decisions, and you have maybe one or two layers of management, as soon as you do that, you now have the equivalent of the telephone game. Is communication really getting to the people that need it in the right format with the right information and understanding? And a lot of times it's simply not. So there's more, the more people you have, the more opportunity for organizational dysfunction, which of course is more opportunity for coaching. Absolutely. I assume it takes somebody with some self-awareness and ability to reflect, to kind of get over themselves, if you will, to say, hey, I need to change something here. I should get a coat. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah. And it's usually not the first time they've been advised they need to get a coach. A board of directors has stepped in. Uh, People that are close to them have said, look, you need to get some support here. And sometimes they just recognize they're drowning. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're failing. There's a term that we use a lot called the imposter syndrome, where you've got an executive that is portraying a role of the CEO, but in their heart of hearts, they know their own flaws and their own weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And they think those are amplified and that other people are going to find them out as the fraud that they feel that they are. And what they don't know is that Pretty much everybody feels that way, (laughs) but of course they're just basing it on their own experience. And sometimes they just need to hear from other people or a trusted advisor that, no, that's pretty normal, but we can still work through it. 
and get you past it because it's not helpful. Sure. And, and we've got to make friends with that, what we call saboteur in our brain that is constantly mm-hmm. trying to keep us safe is what it's trying to do. And But keeping us safe means not changing because what we're doing right now is breathing. And that means the saboteur thinks we're, it's all working because we're breathing. It's a pretty low bar. Sure. And so if we're going to start changing and growing, that drives that protective saboteur crazy. And it tries to keep us right where we are because we're safe at the moment. And that's unfortunately what we battle much more ourselves and our own mindset and our own limiting beliefs than really organizational challenges and other things external. Got it. Okay. Well, you've given us a really good idea of what you do at a high level. Uh, I'm very curious to know, are there any like, um, I won't call them red flags, but those maybe aha moments that kind of trigger the phone call to you? You said board of directors was a great example. Like they give you that little push, that nudge that says you probably need some help. Are there any other moments just so listeners can maybe have a reflective moment, if you will? Yeah, it's when they finally can't sleep. Mm -hmm. And literally the old question is what keeps you up at night? But they are staying awake because they've got so many people problems that they don't know what to do. Everything in their toolkit, they've tried. They've talked to their peers and nothing seems to be working. They can't get traction and they feel like they're just digging in sand and starting to drown in quicksand. That's the way a lot of people describe it is, despite their best efforts, it just feels like whatever they do is not good enough. That's when they say, okay, I've got to get some support here and some resource. And typically what happens is they're finally talked to a peer that they trust who says, yeah, I kind of felt the same way. And boy, I I found a great executive coach. You should call Andy, see what he can do to help. Uh, And that's, that's really the way a lot of my clients come. It's, it is truly, which is ironic, you know, from a guy that comes out of an advertising background, it is a lot of referrals and, and word of mouth because we are such a intimate trusted relationship that has to be confidential because, you know, as a coach, we know almost everything about what's going on in an organization, what the hopes, fears, and dreams of the executive is, et cetera. And without that trust bond and that professionalism there, you know, it's just a very exposed way for an executive to feel. They're used to being in control. Sure. And to be very authentic and exposed is refreshing, but it's also a little bit terrifying for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. I'd like to transition to a topic we were addressing before the call, which is around motivation. Can you share your thoughts on that? Let's have a little conversation here about motivation. Sure. So when I was working at the large company, we were trying to figure out why did some salespeople do so much better than others? And what was really driving that? And could we hire specific traits that would make sense? And about that time, uh, Daniel Pink wrote the book Drive, if you remember that. And it talked about some motivation and things like that. And I happened to research that book a little bit. And I came across this professor from The Ohio State University, Professor Stephen Reese. And he was basically saying that Daniel Pink doesn't know what he's talking about, that his, his book is complete trash and should be thrown away. And as I started to find out more about Professor Reese, I found out, wow, you know, here's a guy that went to Yale and Dartmouth and did his internship at Harvard, taught at the Chicago School of Psychiatry, Professor Emeritus at Ohio State University, and he studied human motivation. And he figured out that humans are motivated all around the world by 13 different continuums. And unlike a lot of things, maybe Myers-Briggs or some of these other tests that people are familiar with, There is no psychological stereotype. There is no profiling. 
people are unique individuals and everyone is motivated by some mix or value system tapestry of these different 16 drivers. And he proved it scientifically, which was really fascinating. And so I got to know him, uh, was trained by him to use his assessment tool called the Reese Motivation Profile. And he was a mentor of mine. And, and it just became really an exciting extension and journey to figure out why do we do what we do? And I can tell you, you know, using this, this tool, they call it the science of motivation, that every reason we do anything is for a reason that matters enough for us to do it. Otherwise, we wouldn't expend the energy. Sure. And all motivation is what we call intrinsic, or it lives inside of the person, the individual. And so you can show, you know, Rudy movies and all these great things and get an emotional response from a crowd or be Tony Robbins and get people really fired up. But it's not motivation. It's not lasting. It's just an emotional right. reaction. And that's why people don't really change after those experiences, typically. What we have to do is find and understand their value system, what matters to them, and then help them get what matters to them most, most often. When you discover the secret of the meaning of life, that means that you do what you find most meaningful most often. And unfortunately, we just don't have a, a owner's manual that tells us that until the Reese Motivation Profile came out. And you can literally understand what's going to be most satisfying for you and what's going to be most frustrating frustration is like a check engine light on your brain. It means that you're not getting something that you need in the quantity that you need it. And it's designed to get you to be distracted so that you'll pay attention to what's not working for you. And so that you'll actually pursue an environment or a thought pattern that's going to be much more satisfying. But unfortunately, we don't tolerate, we don't listen to frustration. We don't understand what it's telling us. And so we tolerate it. And that's the worst thing we can do. When you tolerate frustration, you are literally just bathing your brain in bad chemistry. Mm. And that's why we get this sense of, you know, hopelessness. My needs will never be met. Nobody understands me. All that, that despondency, because that's your brain going into chemical withdrawal from L-dopa, dopamine, serotonin, all of the good giggle juice. And that the brain needs that for us to have that sense of well-being. If we listen to what frustration is teaching us, we know where it lives, then we can actually change our environment, change, reframe the way we think about things to get what we want in the quantity we want. And we experience a tremendous sense of well-being and productivity then. Wow. Great information here. You know, that's great. But what do I do about it? How do I use this kind of information? Right? And what's interesting is, number one, we all think we're normal, but we don't have anything to compare it to except ourselves. And so the Reedy's profile actually compares the intensity with which you report you experience these different needs or values compared to a norm group or 77,000 other people. And when you see that, for example, let's say that you're very curious. Well, if Sean's very curious, that's good to know. You ask a lot of questions, you enjoy learning. But if you are extreme compared to most people, so you're at the top percentage where maybe only one out of a hundred other people is as motivated to learn and, and to take in information and to understand things as you are, that's important information to know because you're going to be that one person in the meeting that asks one question and then that spurs 15 other questions in your head and you're still got five more questions after the meeting ends and everybody else secretly hates you <laughs> because you're not paying attention to how different you really are compared to other people. Sure. This helps people, especially senior leaders, understand how do they need to adapt 
what matters most to them to the needs of more average people. And there are much more average people than there are extreme people. But average people, they're very unpredictable because they don't have a lot of habits because most things don't matter to them as much as other people. When you have an extreme need, you have to have habits in order to routinely satisfy these needs. That's why you hear older people say they're stuck in their ways because they know what now works for them, what's satisfying. And if it's not broke, why try to fix it? Sure. They've, they're done experimenting. And, and so that's what's really important is to put your own value system in comparison to other people so you know how similar or different we really are. We're much more similar as human beings than we really give ourselves credit for. But see, similarities don't trip our limbic system, which is our warning and threat identification system, very primitive, the lizard brain and the base of our brain. See, differences do. And so when we meet someone who wants something we hate, for example, well, they're just weird, odd, or need to be left alone because I can't deal with that. That's just crazy talk. And that's what we do. If you're an executive, you can't let that lizard brain make executive decisions for you. It's just right. far too primitive. You have to use your executive function, which is in the front of your brain, to actually help you through understanding, tolerance, acceptance, and everything else, be able to include opposite worldviews that are very different from yours. And that's what's hard. What we do is we hire a lot of clones, people that have similar values. Why? Because we're on the same page. We get along. They're one of us. But unfortunately, that creates a groupthink organization where there's whole gaps in understanding because no one has that opposite worldview. Or if they do have that opposite worldview, they're such a minority of that worldview that they get shut down, ostracized, and shut up in order to fit in. And that's a terrible challenge, especially in today's diverse environment. Humanity has never, ever in our tribal history ever experienced the level of diversity that we have experienced at the last hundred years. And right. we're, we're still playing catch up. And so we're used to being birds of a feather that flock together and all get along in the cool kid club. And when we meet people that are very different from a different culture and different organizations, et cetera, that is just mind blowing for us. We've never met anybody like that before, especially if they have opposite values. And it really upsets our limbic system and we reject it automatically. And that's where so much division yes. and ostracization and all that it's much more about values than it is some of the other things that people identify much more easily. Right on. Okay. Let's take a quick commercial break. Imagine this. You've been putting money away for years, if not decades, with the hopes to retire someday. But at the average rate of 6%, you realize you have to work another 5 to 10 years longer than expected. Not fun. Since the 1980s, more than double the Americans have to work past the age of 65 and well into their 70s until they can retire. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be working into my 70s if I have to. I want to enjoy freedom, the freedom to spend more time with my family, traveling, and picking up new hobbies. In fact, I want to retire early, and I think most of you would agree. The problem is, a 6% return just doesn't cut it. However, did you know a 15% return can nearly cut your retirement timeline in half? But how do you make more than 15% in the market? Introducing Ticker, a platform that helps you find low-risk, high-return stocks. I've been using Ticker the last five years to generate average returns ranging between 15% and 50%. Get started today with a free trial. Visit Ticker.pro. 
You know, you brought up a good point there about motivation to assess, you know, there is, there's something wrong there. Like you're frustrated, mm -hmm. right? The, the next follow on to that is I think a challenge a lot of people face, which is change. Okay. I understand I'm frustrated with this. How does somebody go about making the changes? Like, I know there's a lot of people, they do not like what they do for work. A lot right. of Americans are just stuck and they have no idea how to change or get out. Yeah. And that is your value system, which is what you use to make sense of the world. Mm -hmm. The tapestry of the different values makes sense of the world. We each experience our own subjective version of reality. That's why you can be in a room with two people. And one says the room's cold. One says the room's hot. Which room are they in? Well, they're both in the same room, but their perceptions are being very uh, different. And that's what we do. Perception is our reality through our value system and affects all of our value judgments. Well, if we're going to be in a role, oftentimes what happens is we try to fit in to that organization. So we mask or we mute or we downplay our natural desires to be more like everyone else. And that takes enormous self-control. We're delaying gratification. We're using willpower. Yep. And it's exhausting. And when we get tired, frustrated, angry, sick, all of that, when any of that happens, we lose the ability to have that self-control. And then we are genuinely showing our true colors to people. And people say, well, gosh, why, are, why do they lose, lose their control like that? Well, because they've been trying like a straitjacket to hold themselves to yeah. fit into an organization that is just not conducive to their needs. The much more wise approach, and this is what I help clients do a lot, is to understand your value system, what matters most to you, what's the ecosystem where you're going to thrive naturally, and where are you going to find toxic things. And then you can literally design or at least try to find a, a role that's going to be life-giving. And it's going to affirm your value system. And you're not going to struggle against your nature every single day, which gives you enormous mental capacity to actually perform desired tasks. But once again, you have to know what you're working with. You have to know that value system. Sure. And so a simple example, if you're someone who is naturally very low on the desire for order, order is that, that one of the 16 different desires and it means how much organization structure do you naturally seek out? Now, about 60% of the population is going to want an average amount of order. They don't think about it that much. So sometimes they want to be organized. Sometimes they're going to be very spontaneous. It doesn't matter. No big deal. A lot of flexibility there. Sure. But some people are going to be extremely order-oriented. These are the people that you could do surgery on their desk. You know, everything is in its place. It's spotless. Every file is filed away in alphabetical order and numbered. And, you know, their to-do list just looks like something from NASA. It's so beautiful in its elegance of, of order. But on the other extreme, there are people that can't tolerate any order. They're incredibly spontaneous. They operate on impulse. They jump from one thing to another. It's like their brain has 75 windows all running in the background, minimized, and every once in a while, one pops up and that grabs their attention and they jump on it. And they can't tolerate structure. And so if we have somebody like that, that finds themselves in a role that requires an enormous amount of order, they're going to just be miserable. Yeah. They're going to they're gonna hate it because it's not that they need time management. That's just going to frustrate them and the teacher. 
they don't need an organizational structure. They need understanding so that they can have stacks and piles and post-it notes everywhere so they can embrace how their brain works and not fight their nature. But most organizations, unfortunately, are not that advanced. What we do is we try to, to fix people. We try to get them to fit in. And especially if we're the boss, there's a term called everyday tyranny where we will say, well, I know what works for me and I got promoted. So therefore you have to be like me. And that's the number one mistake that leaders make is they try to lead other people the way they themselves need to be led. And it doesn't work. Right. Absolutely just drives everybody crazy. And what we need to do is be the boss that that individual needs. And I like to say, you know, you have to act in ways that prove that if it matters to you, it matters to me because you matter to me. When you do that and you embrace that individual and all of their unique quirks and differences and all that and let them bring their whole self and not fight their nature, great things start to happen. Yes. And a lot of times there's a lot of room inside of an organizational boundary, you know, that, that allows someone to genuinely honor how they are hardwired, what their nature is. I was just going to go this direction on how you connect the dots between motivation and the executive coaching. And I assume a part of the the skill set you have is is bringing the realization that, hey, you want happy, motivated people working for you, right? Like, let's get your mindset around that. So all these people who have their own motivations can be motivated about the things they're passionate about and at the same time serve the business. Is that a, that a driver? Spot on, Sean. You know, here's the thing. Our toolkit is really limited. As a leader or an owner or boss or whatever, however you want to call it, we can physically move someone physically from one thing to another and physically do that. We can coerce them. We can bribe them to do things. We can plead with them, but our toolkit is really limited. What's much more effective is if we can truly inspire a reason that matters to that person to want to do it for their own reason. Then we move from missionary or from mercenaries who are just doing something for a paycheck to missionaries who are doing it for their own mission and, and purpose. Sure. The key is understanding what is going to light up that person. Now, unfortunately, if you don't have a reason motivation profile for your team, you're going to be guessing. And so you have to look for clues and you have to observe people and you have to spend a lot of time talking to people and what lights them up. What do they get passionate about? What do they get frustrated? What are they doing? All that kind of detective work. Or you can work with me and get a reason motivation profile. We can answer, give you the data right there. Because once you understand that, then you can speak in ways that are going to allow what I call a heart-to-heart -heart conversation, where you're not just transferring information, but you're transferring meaning and you're understanding someone at a motivational level so that they can communicate how important something is to them. Once you do that, you can then adapt so that you can give them what they need to be resourced in a way that actually stimulates their own motivation. It's going to be different for every single person you're working with. It's a task. It's not easy. Yeah. But the alternative is you end up with the best people who have the most options being frustrated and leaving. And that's why the number one reason most people say they leave a job is not that they can't do the job. People are very flexible. We can do a lot of jobs. Problem is they can't get along with their boss. Mm. That's not the person's problem. That's the boss not understanding that they are contributing to the situation as well. And so when the boss understands that, then we can say, okay, look, what do you know are your hot buttons? What do you know you're much more extreme than everybody else? 
And how can we then use your self-control to help you be the boss that that person needs to be successful? The only thing we have are our own mindsets, how we think about things. We can reframe that with questioning. You know, we can think about something a little bit different than, than uh, what we normally do and find our own motivation to do something. Or we have to change the environment. Those are the only two things we have to play with. Sure. That this information is impressive. I think a lot of people would benefit from your services because there are a lot of people who you're you nailed it. They're working for an organization and maybe it's not the job they do. Maybe they like the job, like the tasks, but the the boss, they're not aligned with the boss, they don't get along with the boss. Um, and from a boss's perspective, I imagine it takes some, I look at humility and reflection to say, hey. If I want people to work with me better, I've got to make some changes first. And yes. right, right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And not just that. I mean, the boss plays a very important role, obviously. Mm-hmm. But any human groupings, and and I'll just leave it like that, a grouping, there are two main types of conflict that's inevitable. And the first one is really about the tasks. So we argue about ideas, we argue about differences of opinion, differences of viewpoint, and that kind of thing. Difference, differences of the way something should be prioritized. That's task conflict, and that's actually very healthy for an organization. You want to foster that so people can be open and share their opinion about the work that needs to be done and how the work needs to be done. Healthy organizations have that. But what's unhealthy and detrimental and causes great dysfunction is what we call relational conflict. Relational conflict is when I'm not judging the task. I'm judging your personality. I'm judging your values. I'm judging you as defective to me. And that's really, really hard to get past. In fact, I just read a study uh, from 2005, and the researchers were studying both of these things in the Netherlands at at a workplace. And their recommendation was, well, there's not much you can do about relational conflict. So the best thing you can advise is just to minimize it and ignore it and focus on the task instead. (laughs) Oh, that's going to work. Yeah, right. I hate the person next door and I can't even talk to him, but I'm just going to ignore it. We're going to focus on the task and that's going to be okay, right? That was great. PhD level advice. <laughs> and what's much more effective is when what I do is, is called inclusive collaboration or inclusive teamwork. And when we have these risk profiles for everybody, we can see and predict where these opposite ends of the spectrum on values are and where misunderstanding is going to be very likely. And so we can inoculate people with what will likely happen and how are they then going to deal with it when it happens. Because it's not a matter of if it's going to happen, it's when it's going to happen, because these are the things that matter most. And opposites don't attract. They argue, and they're motivated to argue and defend their values, because that's what matters to them. It's much better to understand that. And then what I like to say is, you know, organizationally, we don't want to build a jigsaw puzzle where every piece has to fit exactly right, because there's not enough time and there's not enough people, right? You can't find the perfect fit. You got to move on with life. Instead, what we have to do is create mosaics. And so we have to take that unique, beautiful, gifted person that's very different and a little bit broken in some pieces or whatever, and have them fit into proximity 
with other broken, wonderful, unique pieces so that we bring out the beauty of the organization. What holds that organization together, that grout, so to speak, is really understanding, tolerance, uh, acceptance, all these things, respect that we talk about, but it has a real meaning when we know what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to allow people to be individuals. And we're trying to allow them to be uniquely the way that they're naturally created to be. When they do that, then everybody's bringing the best of who they are every day to the party. Good things start to happen. Magnificent mosaics. That's what I would advise any executive out there in your audience. Create a magnificent mosaic. If you're breaking pieces or if pieces are falling out of the organization or if you're throwing pieces out of the organization, remember the constant there is you. Mm, I love it. Great. Great perspective on motivation. Great advice here. All right. So let's transition here. This is the part of the episode where we get to find out who Andy really is. This is the rapid fire round. (laughs) And if you could try to answer each question in 15 seconds or less. You ready? Sure. All right. Number one, what is your favorite podcast? Uh, The Hopeful Hoosier podcast. That's the one I create, but (laughs) same shameless self plug. There you go. All right. What is a recent book you read and would recommend? Um, I typically read about one to two books a week. And so it's hard to know one that I really, really liked. I I tell you what, one that has really had a terrific impact with um, where I'm at the beginning of this year, 2021, is The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Fabulous book. Talking about the fact that distraction is the enemy, hurry is the enemy, And if we slow down, uh, as the Navy SEALs say, you know, slow is fast. Fast. Fast is slow. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we need. I like it. Good recommendation. Right. Next question. What is your favorite movie? (sighs) I I love storytelling, as you can tell. And so a movie with a great story is, I'm just a sucker for it. I think any of the epic Tolkien movies, whether it's Lord of the Mm. Rings, The Hobbit, or whatever, is just such amazing, rich storytelling uh, that it's tough to go wrong with. I would agree. Great movies, great books. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All about humanity. You know, it's, it's, there's just so many layers and depth of understanding the human condition. And then when you understand that it was written, you know, during World War II as well, when the world really looked like it was going to come to an end, that's, it's just fascinating. You know, when you put it in context. Right. Good point. Right. Next question. What is your favorite food? Uh, I love all food and, and I'm not trying to be a cop out. So on the Reese motivation profile, one of the categories is food. How strong is your appetite? And I am top of the scale on that. So <laughs> I am one in a hundred people and, and I struggle with my weight all the time because I love food. So I have to say the favorite type of food Anything Mediterranean uh, is sure. really, really good and high on my list, as well as I love Asian cuisine uh, of all flavors and sorts. Nice. All right. How many hours do you work per week? Um, I'm bad. Uh, because I'm a solopreneur and I love what I do, I tend to not have very good boundaries. And so I, I work longer hours than I should because I would never advise my clients to do what I do. It's not sustainable, but it's also sort of not only my passion, but my hobby. And so I enjoy doing it. So I don't get tired doing it um, because I love what I do. But I probably put in anywhere from 50 to 60 hours a week, realistically. Um, 
but it's not hard work. It's doing what I love. So, yep. you know, it's a, a lot of joy and fun involved as well. That's a common denominator on this show is a lot of people, they, they may work a lot of hours, but there's a lot of fun in there. It's not work, right? Yeah. 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 I wouldn't trade what I get to do for anything else, for any amount of money. Mm-hmm. It is such a joy to help people better understand themselves, to grow, to, to realize untapped potential and to get to play a small part in that, that there is no more satisfying honor that I've ever achieved. No, that's great. Right. Next question. How many hours do you sleep each night? I'm really good at that. I'll I'll say I work hard, but I (laughs) sleep hard too. So I go to bed literally around nine o'clock at night, um, but I'm up early. I'm I'm up at about 4.50 in the morning. Okay. Um, So I get, you know, a good seven, eight hours a night. Nice. Very healthy. Yeah. What is your workout regimen? I have two corgis. And so our workout regimen is whatever they demand of me. Uh, they are very bossy herding dogs. And so they, they need a lot of exercise. So we do lots of walking and uh, lots of playing with them. And that's, that's really the primary thing that I get to do. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. it's a lot of fun. A dog guy. Yeah, my yes. kind of guy. Yeah. All right. And last question here. If you could go back in time to give your younger self advice, what age would you visit and what would you say? You know, I think I would go back uh, to my about 19 or 20-year-old self when I was so focused on getting through college and getting into the quote-unquote real world. And I knew what I wanted to do. I was incredibly goal-oriented, and I knew that I wanted to be in the media and all that. And so I would tell myself, don't rush through this, prepare through this, because what you're studying isn't just to use tomorrow. It's teaching you how to learn, and you're going to need that because everything you learn uh, in about 1990 when I graduated grad school is going to be outdated by about 1998, and you're going to be starting over with whole new things that you're going to need to learn. So learn how to learn and learn effectively and efficiently. It'll serve you well. Nice. Great advice. All right. I'll turn it over to you. Where can the audience reach you? You can reach me at ad growth advisors and that's a d g r o w t h a d v i s e r s dot com you can also get me on linkedin and so i'm andy a n d y d i x and it's the i n one because i'm in indiana uh, there are several andy dixes and i've uh, actually made connections with most of them around the world it's kind of my fun thing to do mm-hmm. to see other versions of me floating around doppelgangers um, it's it's really entertaining <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I'm the one in Indiana with the bad hair. So look for the guy with the chia pet hair. That's me. Um, and then also you can listen to my podcast, the hopeful Hoosier podcast available wherever you download podcasts like this one. All right, Andy, it was a real pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for the information on motivation. This was awesome. Thanks, Sean. It was a joy and I wish you continued success and keep putting out the great financial resources and information. There's a whole lot of people motivated out there to be curious and you satisfy that need for them. Well, thank you. All right. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Don't be wasting any time. I got somewhere to be. Always on the grind. Yeah, you know me. All the crowd will be mine. You can call me king. Hey, I just want to say thanks for checking out this podcast. I know you're Time is valuable, and there's a lot of other podcasts out there you could be listening to, so thanks for taking the time to listen to my guest story. 
If you did enjoy this podcast episode, could you head over to iTunes and leave a five-star review? That would be much appreciated. Thank you. And last but not least, on this podcast, uh, some episodes we do talk about stocks. And please keep in mind, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. So if you did hear any buy or sell recommendations, please don't make those decisions based solely on what you hear. All right. Thanks a lot. See ya. Don't be wasting any time. I got somewhere to be. Always on the grind. Yeah, you know me. All the crowd will be mine. You can call me king. A matter of time for you all love me. Find me at my prime right where I want to be. I'm one of a kind. There's no one like me.